Well, if you've been with us already a little bit, we're just starting a series in the book of 1 Timothy. And so today we are really just getting into it, verses 3 to 7. So if you want to turn there, you can. If you have a Bible, if not, we'll have the verses up on the screen. Uh, but I want to begin this morning just by kind of painting a picture that will help us in terms of the, what's going on here um, in, the, in the text. And so I want to paint a picture of a, a life and death crisis. So imagine with me, if you will, that you're driving up to Penticton, you're taking the number three highway. It's very dark, it's very rainy, and you turn a corner and you see a vehicle collision. Just, just happened. Two cars smash into each other. There's wreckage all over the place. And so you jump out of your car and run to see if everyone's okay. Uh, the first driver is, is okay. The uh, airbag deployed. He's doing, you know, he's kind of dazed, but doesn't seem like any major injuries. The second driver, though, the airbag did not deploy and looks in really rough shape. I mean, legs are all smashed up, arms kind of bent the way it shouldn't, a lot of uh, lacerations from the glass, a uh, head wound, and you're not even sure if the driver is conscious. And so you, you drag the driver out of the car, and of course, you're, you're wondering, you've you got to figure out, what do I do first? There's a lot of problems. Clearly, a lot of issues with this person, but you need to know what's the, the main thing to do. And if you know any first aid, you know you've got to check the vitals, right? You need to make sure the heart is beating, that they're breathing, Otherwise, you, you could, you know, tend to that person and, you know, bind up wounds and do all sorts of good things to care for them. But if you haven't dealt with the essential issue of their heart, they could still die, right? If you don't know that which is most important for the body's health, then everything else uh, is really meaningless. And the reason I paint that picture is because that, that picture of a body that is sort of clinging to life is a fairly accurate picture of the church in Ephesus, uh, that, that's, that's the case because there are real problems in Ephesus. And as we learned last week uh, in a bit of our intro, uh, the letter of 1 Timothy is from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who is at work there in Ephesus, and he's having to deal with all of these problems. And there were a lot of them. There were problems with people who were worshiping false spirits. There were problems with people who were telling everyone, look, if you really want to be close to God, you need to not get married, you need to devote yourself to the Lord, kind of be a monk off by yourself. There's others who were saying, to really be close to God, you've got to follow all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And because of all of that, there's a lot of conflict and controversy in the church. And to make matters worse, uh, there were false teachers in the church, teachers who were trying to be helpful, but they were focusing on things that didn't matter secondary issues instead of the, the core issue. And because of all their ruminations, because of all their talk and teaching, they were missing that which actually brings life to the church, which is the gospel. So Paul's intention in this letter is to bring critical care to the church in Ephesus. And the way that he tells Timothy to do that is to confront the false teaching, confront the incorrect, unhelpful doctrine that is being talked about and to get back to the true core of the church, which is the gospel, the thing which really can bring life and help and hope. So our plan this morning, I'm going to read uh, right now verses 3 to 7, and then we're going to look at the, the two contrasting uh, types of doctrine that we find here in this text. So again, you can uh, listen along, uh, follow along in your Bible, but then as we teach through it, the, the verses will be up on the screen. So here's God's word to us this morning. Again, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we're going to pause there, stop there for today, and maybe you can already hear the kind of two contrasting uh, doctrines that are being talked about. There's the, the different or false doctrines that the teachers are teaching there, and then there's the true aim that Paul talks about, which is, which is the gospel, which leads to love. So we're going to look at these two things, the false doctrine and the two, true doctrine. And uh, the first is this false doctrine we see here in the text leads to vanity. Uh, vanity means meaningless, pointless, futile, kind of puffed up. And uh, we see this, um, well, we're going to look first at the doctrine itself. So look at verse 3. You can see there uh, Paul's first words. I urged you, Timothy, I was going to Macedonia, I remained at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So it had been a few years since Paul was in Ephesus. When he left, he basically said, look, there's trouble brewing. There are going to be some false teachers that are going to come among you. And so he sent Timothy there to deal with the issue, but the issue has not been dealt with. In fact, it's gotten worse to the point that there's, a, there's really a crisis here in, in Paul's eyes for this church. And so he gets right to the issue at hand, right there in his very first, apart from the greeting, his first lines, he talks about this false doctrine. And actually that whole phrasing there, teach any different doctrine, is actually one word. It's this combo word that Paul made up of these two Greek words. And so in the Greek, it looks like this, heterodescaline. And uh, it's made up of two parts, hetero, which, I'm sorry, we put in white. It's harder to see when we do that, but hetero is different. And then the second part, didascaline, is teaching or truth. So you see there, Paul's very clearly saying to Timothy, look, I told you to go there and to tell people not to teach a different doctrine. Now, the different part is really clear. What you might be wondering is, where do you get the falseness from? Because our, our first point is that false doctrine leads to vanity. Why is it that it's false? Could it not just be different? Right? Different doesn't necessarily mean bad. Uh, my old youth pastor had a saying. He would say, different is different, no better or worse. Right? Um, and so what that means is there are times where it's just personal preference. Right? Your hairstyle, fashion, ringtone, whatever you want. It's, it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's whatever you want. But Paul says the gospel is not like that. Right? The doctrine of the church is not like that. Paul says there is a singular truth of the gospel that cannot be deviated from or else you lose the gospel itself. In fact, in his letter uh, to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, uh, he says it with very emphatic language. Here's, here's how he writes to them about the same issue. He says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That word means like to be damned. It's very strong language. He's saying if anyone comes and tries to teach you something different, like a deviated gospel, then they should, they should be cursed forever. And you think, man, why, why is this such a big deal? I mean, why is it a big deal that some people in Ephesus are teaching some things that are kind of different, like their own take, their own spin on the regular doctrine of the church. Isn't variety a good thing? In fact, why does it have to be Paul's way? That's what he's saying. Look, if anyone teaches you something different than me, then they should be cursed. 
That's how serious this is. It has to be my way. Paul, why, why does it have to be your way? And the answer is because Paul's way is Jesus's way. Paul's gospel is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the crucified Savior, the gospel of the one who came to deal with the essential problem of every human being, which is sin. See, the reality of sin in our lives means that we are all under the penalty of death. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus means that he, he came to take our death on himself. That's what happened on the cross. And the other side of that true gospel is that he didn't stay dead, but he rose to new life. And so the essential component of the true gospel is that it actually deals with the most important issue for every human being, which is our eternal destination, the issue of sin. And to the extent that you deviate from that gospel, you, the gospel itself loses its power to save. Now, what you see, sort of hear Paul saying here is, is, look, there are going to be other gospels, right? There's going to be other people, other religions, other philosophies, other ways of, of life going well. You just have to walk into the bookstore. You see self-help books. You see it online. You see all these things of people saying, look, if you do this, it's going to be better. This is the key to life. And once I started eating this, once I stopped eating this, then everything got better. That's what you need. None of those things can actually save because none of those things deal with sin. And Paul, Paul is partly saying, look, that we understand. We expect that outside of the church. But inside the church, if it's a Christian church, you should expect to receive the true gospel. You should expect to hear about the gospel of Jesus. You should expect to know how it is that God says that we can be saved. If there's ever a place that you should hear from God, it's, it's there. In fact, if you think about how, how ridiculous this is and how, how serious this is, imagine back to our car accident scene, right, with the people lying there. You, you could... You could understand if someone came onto that scene, a bystander who had no first aid training and tried to help that, that poor guy, right? They might look and see all the blood, see all the issues and start to deal with those things, forgetting to check pulse, forgetting to check heart rate. If that person died, people would have some level of understanding saying, well, like, you know, they weren't, they didn't really know what they were doing. But if the paramedics showed up, and they went to tend to someone and they didn't check any vitals and they started doing tourniquets and you know, getting a splint and dealing with all the secondary issues and the victim died, there would be a lawsuit, right? The family would say, what are you doing? You're the experts. If anyone should know what to do in a life and death situation, it's you. You are supposed to be an expert of the human body and know how to respond. See, the problem with Ephesus is that you had supposed experts that were not actually bringing life into the church. They were focusing on all these secondary things instead of the thing which, which will bring life. And so it's actually worse than that if, if you really read of what Paul's saying here because it, it's not just that they were focusing on secondary issues. Many times they were focusing on, on things that weren't even issues of doctrine, weren't, weren't even in scripture. The image, you could, you could push the metaphor to be like a paramedic who shows up, finds someone on the ground, not breathing, and, and they go and they start to do their hair. Like do their nails. They're like, is it feeling better? Is this, is this helping? It looks better. Right? The efforts are futile. It's, it's a travesty. That's, that's not what should be happening here in, in the church. So, false doctrine, what Paul says really clearly, leads to vanity. And what's the nature of that vanity, that meaninglessness? There are two main things that we see in our text. First is trivial speculations. Uh, look, look back to verses 3 and 4. 
He says, uh, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies uh, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And then again in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Now you have to understand back then there were a lot of different um, false doctrines. Most of the time people were uh, teaching things like, look, Jesus wasn't really resurrected. Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. Uh, Jesus was the Messiah, but to be saved, you have to also keep all of these Old Testament laws. In all of those ways, they were really denying the gospel, saying that's not right. This is what you need to be saved. The interesting thing in Ephesus is that they, they weren't really denying the gospel. It was more that they were smothering it with a whole bunch of other teachings, about a whole bunch of other stuff that, that really wasn't helpful, wasn't essentially necessary for spiritual life and spiritual growth. You see there the list, myths, endless genealogies, speculations, vain discussion. Just as an example, here's, here's what they would do. They would take their Old Testament Back then, it wasn't the Old Testament. It was just the, the, the law, the Pentateuch. They would, uh, for example, the genealogies. They'd find a genealogy and they'd get captivated by it. Genesis 36 has the descendants of Esau. And they would look at it, for example. They'd say, look at all these names. Basemath, Jalem, Korah. I wonder who they are. Man, we should find out more about who these people are. And as they read other parts of Scripture, man, I see them here too. They're listed here. They'd make cross-references. They'd make charts. They'd read other, other books, other ancient texts, and look for those same names. They would have study groups trying to find out how, what's the significance of these lists of names in the Bible in terms of what God is doing. They'd get caught up in all sorts of other things. Or, or they would find some, some very small part of Scripture, and they would make it very, very big. For example, if you know uh, the Nephilim in Genesis 6, there are these very mysterious beings that are referenced only two times in the whole of Scripture, and yet pe people tend to get caught up in who they are. Yeah, they would ask questions. The Nephilim, who are they? Are they actually like a product of angels and, and people coming together? Are they really the giants of the, of the promised land? Was Goliath a Nephilim? Where are the Nephilim today? Have they created a secret society that is still controlling half the world's wealth? Is that who they are? We need to know. We need to talk about this a lot. You see what can happen. They are mysterious and interesting and a part of Scripture, and yet they should not loom that large in our theology. Just to give you another, just, um, just to have in our minds how this can happen. Imagine, if you would, uh, an art history um, person, right? Uh, an academic who, who finds it, an image that just really interests them. It's a small image. Here it is. Now imagine they, they see this and they think, man, it's so, I just really want to know what, I mean, what's going on here? Like the colors, the, the composition. So they, they begin to delve deeper. They kind of zoom in, right? They, they make it bigger and bigger. They, they identify, well, I think there's some people there. I wonder, wonder where they are. I wonder what the significance of that one person in relation to the other. It gets bigger. It looms so big, not just physically, but in their mind. They write PhD dissertations. They give lectures, all trying to, you know, uncover the truth of this image. And the problem is that they've ruined the whole perspective of the image. That the image itself was intended to be small. And if they were to return it to that right size, and instead of zooming in, zoom out, there would be much greater clarity. It's a part of a greater whole, a beautiful painting that is both clear and beautiful and easy to understand. You see, that's what's happening with these false teachers. They're zooming in on certain parts of, 
of Scripture that are there but are not meant to be blown up so big. And because they blow it up so big, they miss the, the clarity of Scripture, which is very clearly all about Jesus. The Old Testament, all leading towards the coming Messiah, Jesus the Messiah who came for us and died for us. It's not a mystery in the sense that we have to uncover some code or something to figure it out. It's right there for all to see. What Paul's saying is that that, that should be what was happening in the church in Ephesus. But instead, he says certain persons, which are probably elders within the church, were focusing on their theological hobby horses to the extent that the gospel itself was being lost. We see this clearly in verse 4, just at the end there. Uh, He says they're promoting speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That idea of stewardship means that the church itself has been given something. We've been given a a truth, a, a doctrine, the gospel, that, that is, tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and it's our job to be good stewards of it. And if you're, if you're not focusing on the gospel itself, in fact, if you're neglecting it, then you're not a good steward. That is, people are coming into the church of Ephesus expecting to hear the clarity from God. Instead, they're getting a whole bunch of other things that can't bring spiritual life. See, this was clearly an issue for the Ephesian church. But you probably already know this has always been an issue for the church. Like from that point until today, there are many, many people that get caught up in other secondary things and tend to distract and, and cloud the issue of the gospel. Even today, there are things like, like the Bible code, which apparently is a code that you need to know to, to understand that the Bible, the words aren't enough. You have to know the numbers and try to decipher it. There are uh, books like the Da Vinci Code, there's the Book of Mormon, the Gospel of Thomas, all these kind of extra biblical things which try to reinterpret Scripture and say, look, this is the secret, this is what you need to know. But it's not just that. I mean, those kinds of things are easy to throw stones at, and and we should. But, But there are also things that are true in Scripture that we tend to focus on so much that we neglect the greater truth of Scripture. For example, things like end times, right? We love to try to understand all the symbols, all the numbers in terms of the end times. What does it mean? Uh, I was at Superstore uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, my, once everything was rung through, my total was $66.06. And uh, the woman said to me, do you want to put something back? She said. <laughs> and I was like... Why? She said, well, some people, when that happens, they don't want the 666 because it's in, it's in the Bible. She's, we're scared of it, right? That, that can consume us. Where we're trying to see all of life through that prophetic lens and we're missing the bigger things. Sometimes people get caught up in all sorts of things in the Bible. Uh, the Jewish festivals, right? They, they try to live out that pattern of life and get caught up in that. Sometimes our own theological constructs. So here's a question for us. Because it's easy with this for us to think about other people and other ministries that are kind of clouding things. But let me ask you this, like if you're a believer, um, can you think of some ways in which you muddy the gospel when you talk about your faith? Like as a litmus test for what Paul is really pushing here, when you get the opportunity to, to share your faith, like to share the things that if someone were to say to you, man, why, like, why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? Like tell me about that. What are the first things that come out of your mouth? What are you most excited about sharing? Is it the social justice issues that the church is involved in? 
Is it the prophecies of the Old and New Testament that kind of come together in the end? Is it other secondary true things? Or, or do you talk about Jesus? Do you, do you take the opportunity to share, look, man, here, here's, here's the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Like I struggled with anxiety before and, and identity and man, I really struggle with feelings of worthlessness and it's not that everything has been taken care of, but man, I, I know who I am now. Like I know I'm, I know I'm loved because I understand that God sent his son for me. Do you take those opportunities to make much of of Jesus and his gospel to make clear for whoever's asking, look, this is, this is the core of, of my faith. See, if we don't do that, and hear me, it's not that we never talk about anything else, but, but if that is not our focus, then, then we are falling into some of the same traps of these false teachers. We're not being a good steward of what God has given us. Think about it like this. It would be like going to get heart surgery because your heart is failing and you have like one of the best surgeons in the country and he does the surgery, um, you're saved, it's fantastic and your friend also has problems with their heart and they come to you and say, well, tell me about that. How, how did that happen? And you say, I'd love to tell you about that. And you go on for 20 minutes talking about how great the food in the hospital was and how your room was so comfy and the administration, all these other things. They would say, well, yeah, that's great, but what about the surgeon? Like how did, who saved you? See, when people come to want to know, to hear from God, they want to know how to be saved. We should be clear. We should be focused on that which is the most essential thing for every person, every human being. The trivial speculations of the teachers there were muddying the waters, were making it so that the church was not able to, to proclaim what it should. And the second thing we see is that this vanity of these false, this false doctrine wasn't just trivial speculations, it was also pride. See, the teachers there weren't just caught up in these ideas, but they were caught up in themselves. Now look at verse 7. In speaking about them, Paul says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you have there a high level of confidence, but also a high level of ignorance. Those two things, not good. Right? If you have a manager like that, it's horrible. You don't know what you're talking about, and yet you're proclaiming it so passionately. This often happens for us, especially when we, when we find something that we believe to be true, when we find some deeper mystery or some answer biblically, very often, right, we, we become consumed with making sure that everyone around us understands it in exactly the same way. See, it isn't just that these speculations are distracting or misleading, it's that they end up bringing conflict into the church. And Paul's very clear about this. Again, he writes very strongly uh, at the end of the letter, we're going to jump ahead just to see his words. This is in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. I mean, just, just think of how many churches have been torn apart by this kind of teaching. Think about how many people have been hurt from this kind of teaching, these kinds of theological discussions. And again, it's very easy to think about all those people who are doing this. 
but it's good for us to examine ourselves too. I mean, I can think when I got first into, really into theology and was so excited about seeing clearly things that I had questions about for years. And in my excitement, I was very eager to, to share that with the people around me. But because of my excitement and because of my pride, I ended up hurting a lot of people around me. See, Paul's answer to this, Paul's answer to this is to point out that good leadership, good teaching, has both good doctrine, the right doctrine, but also the right character. That those two things should go together. The, the gospel, when we know it truly, should breed a humility in us, a gentleness, a love in us. He talks about this a lot in chapter 3 uh, when he talks about elders. Here's a little preview. When he talks about overseers, he's saying they should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That word able to teach is talking about doctrine, true doctrine. He's saying they need to know that. But it's not just that they know what's true, it's that they're able to teach it in a way that is loving and kind and gentle in a way that really seeks to help people come to a greater understanding rather than hammering them with it. See, sometimes what happens is that people who've been hurt by the church or hurt from these kind of theological discussions, um, sometimes we say, well, you know what? What would be best for the church is if we, were just, if we would just talk less about theology. Like for us to really, you know, make things go well, we should just get together talk about Jesus, love each other, but not talk too deep. Because that's what always ends up causing trouble, doesn't it? But you notice that's not what Paul says. Paul does talk about the importance of love, but he ties it into essential truths about the doctrine of the gospel. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes, in response to that idea, says this. He says, look, what we know and believe has everything to do with how we live. Doctrine is at the heart of practical living. So what he's saying is that you can't just come together and say, let's just love each other and love Jesus because you need to know who Jesus is. Who is he? What has he done? What kind of love should we have for each other? Should it be superficial, convenient, or should it be sacrificial? Should it be long-suffering? What he says is that we actually need more good doctrine in the church so that we might end up with greater love. Paul makes really clear, a life of love comes from a right understanding of doctrine. So false doctrine leads to vanity, trivial speculations, pride. But to turn the corner, true doctrine leads to love. Look at verse five. This is where he hammers it home. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You notice there, he's not just saying, look, you guys are wrong. He's saying the whole church is, you're missing the main point of what God has given us to do. We're supposed to love people. Our aim is love and we're not hitting the mark. And part of the reason we're not doing that is because you don't really understand the gospel. In fact, that's, that's what he lists. Those three things are all components of, of the gospel. So let's go through each one in turn. Uh, pure heart is the first one he mentions. Love comes from a pure heart. Uh, our heart is basically the core of who we are. It's not just our organ. Biblically speaking, it's like our soul. And so if we were to have a pure heart, we would love all that is good and beautiful and pure and loving and we know that we don't do that very well. We know that for the most part, we, we love in a haphazard, kind of corrupted kind of way, full of deceit, double-mindedness, greed. 
apart from God, it's really hard for us to love people well. So what's the, what's the answer? What's the answer for, for a community where we know that we should love each other well and yet we're not doing it? The other different doctrines will say, well, you, look, you need, to, you need to get better then. You need to fix yourselves. Right? Quit being so selfish. You, you do it and then love them better. All things will go well. We know from experience that that long-term, that doesn't tend to work. Long-term, uh, we all either get frustrated because it all falls apart. We feel like failures or we just feel like this, it's not worth it. Especially if we're trying to love someone who is very difficult to love. And then we think, if I'm doing all this work and they're giving me nothing back, why even bother? See, understanding the gospel gives us a window into what true love is. Sacrificial, generous, generous. But also that the gift of God is that he gives us a new heart. We don't have to make it on our own. In fact, he said back in the Old Testament, he prophesied this. Uh, he said this through his prophets. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, heart that is alive, heart that can really love the people around you because it's not struggling for life and not focused on itself. The gospel tells us that a pure heart is a gift of God. And when we know that and understand that, we will be more loving by his power and grace. The second thing we see is that we need a good conscience. Uh, I'm not sure how you think of your conscience. I think of it sometimes like a, like a Geiger counter. You know, when you're walking around near something that's radioactive and is going to kill you, the Geiger counter goes, beep, 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 makes all those noises, and then you go away from that so you don't die. Your conscience is kind of like that because when you are about to step into something that is, that is wrong, that is uh, greedy or unkind or whatever, is wrong morally, it, it doesn't make noises, but it tugs on your heart, right? So you think, I, I probably shouldn't do that. That's not right. That's not going to be good for me or for someone else, and it leads you back onto the right path. The problem, of course, is that we're very good at ignoring our conscience, to the extent that the tugs on our heart, they become so faint, you know? And so that we're, we're being abrasive with people, we're being unkind, we're being selfish, and we don't even notice it. It's like we're walking around in Chernobyl, and we don't realize that our, the batteries in our Geiger counter are gone, so we think everything's great, this is such a nice place, and yet we're dying. That, that's us in our sin apart from the work of God. But the good news is that the gift of a pure heart, a new heart in us, brings with it a renewed sense of a conscience. And you might have experienced that if you've come to faith later on in life, that once you started to know Jesus, live as a Christian, all of a sudden there, there's all these things that you used to do and not even think about it. And now you're like, Man, I, don't, I don't know if I feel right about that. The way that I treat my family, the way that I use my money, the things that I watch, all these things that I, I mean, I didn't care at all. And now I'm thinking maybe I need to make a change. Why is that? Because God's desire is not just to give you a ticket into heaven, but to shape you, to make you new right here and now. And that transformation is, is an increase in love for the people around you. It's the gift of a pure heart and a good conscience that fuels love. And it's all wrapped up in the third thing, which is a sincere faith. That literally means uh, faith without hypocrisy. A faith that is real. And what you find with faith in the Bible is that it's very often paired with love. Especially in the letters of 1 Timothy. Here's a couple of examples. 1 Timothy 1.14 and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Why do those things always go together? 
Because to have faith means that you trust God. You know him and you trust him. And as you trust him, you are always transformed by him. You don't stay the same. If you really believe that Jesus died for you, means you really believe that you need him, that you're a sinner. Makes you more finely attuned to your failings and your need for help. And as you experience his forgiveness, it grows your capacity to love others. John Piper says this about love. He says, love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. That's a byproduct of experiencing God, coming to faith. It's not just that you believe what is true, but that you're changed to care more for the people around you. And if you think about it, that's always what love does, doesn't it? I mean, think for a moment about what, what, what happens when you fall in love. Here's an example. Imagine that you have uh, a friend named Marcel. Marcel is looking for love. Okay, Marcel doesn't have a girlfriend. He's, he's had some in the past, fallen apart, but he, he's in a kind of a low point in his life. Right? He's spending a lot of time watching superhero movies. Right? He plays a lot of Catan and a lot of magic cards, and he's kind of just spiraling down into a dark place. <sighs> to make matters worse, he's, he's not... He's not on the lookout. He's not really engaging in a way that he would meet someone who might be good for him. And yet, miraculously, Marcel meets a girl. He meets her in a comic book shop. Her name is Tammy. They reach for the same X-Men comic. Their eyes meet. They look. They're both wearing black. They figure, this is, this is a match made in heaven. This is going to be great. And they get to know each other. They love the same superheroes. I mean, it really is. He's really excited about it. And you notice right away that Marcel has changed. Now, all of a sudden, when you meet him, he's, he's full of life. He's excited about things. In fact, he wants to engage in life. You ask him, Marcel, could you help me move? He says, I'd love to help you move. You're just, you're blown away. The other thing you notice is that Marcel, man, he, he wants to know everything he can about Tammy. In fact, when he's not even with her, he's talking all the time. Did you know, he says, that Tammy, one time, she saved a child from drowning. Really? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was in a spray park, but probably the child would get too much water, but she saved the child. That's, that's kind of what she's like. He says, have you seen Tammy's tattoo? It's gorgeous. It's this serpent wrestling a panda. It's, it's beautiful. You have to see it. Okay, it's just... He talks on and on about Tammy. Why? Because he's in love. Because that's what happens when we meet someone that we think is going to fulfill us. Now, I know there's problems with that in terms of whether Tammy will fulfill him ultimately. But look, he's excited. He's excited because he is experiencing love. And what, that, what happens there is the same kind of thing that happens when we come to know the Lord. We get excited to know Jesus more, and it changes the way we see life. It should do that. If Marcel had met Tammy, and yet nothing had changed in his life, I mean, if he was still feeling really down, feeling kind of low, not, not engaging on the couch a lot, if he was never talking about her, at a certain point you would say, Marcel, I'm, I'm not sure this is love. I'm not sure this girl is right for you. It just doesn't seem like like the right things are happening, that it's having the effect that love usually has. And see, for some of us, we know the Lord, and yet there's no increase of affection. The things of God no longer really interest us that much anymore. We're not really interested in the, in the core doctrines of the church. Maybe we've gotten caught up in all these other secondary things, and maybe the people in our lives are not really sensing or feeling our love because... We're really not filled with the Spirit in the way that we once were. See, what Paul is saying very clearly to the church in Ephesus is, look, there is an aim. There is a target for us as a church. We should be a people that are known for our love. 
which means that we should know the love of God. Because if we try to do that on our own, it's, it's going to fall apart. In Ephesus, there was a distinct lack of love. And Paul is tying it directly to this false doctrine that was not spurring people on in the way that the gospel truly does. This was, of course, a specific word to the church at that time. But because it's been preserved in scripture, we know also that God is still speaking to his church. That he's, speaking, he's been speaking throughout all the centuries and to us today. And so it's good for us to, to take a moment and consider what, what is it that God is saying to us? I mean, as individuals, are our lives marked by love? I don't just mean the stranger on the street who's like asking for help. We should care for them and love them, but the people in our lives that we struggle to love. Are we seeing a greater capacity in our own minds and hearts to be selfless, to be generous, to be sacrificial, understanding? It's not that we're perfect at it, but are we growing in it? Those are the byproducts that we should see. Are we interested in God himself and wanting to know him more? As a church, I mean, we're a young church, and I don't, I don't honestly think that we are in this critical condition like the Ephesian church, but listen, there was a time when the Ephesian church had just begun, and they were holding firmly to the gospel, and over the years, something happened, something changed. We need to be aware of that. We need to be mindful of the fact that it is possible to, to, to kind of get swayed, to get distracted by things that we think are so important and, and maybe are to a certain extent and lose sight of the gospel. Are we loving as a church? Are we loving enough? Are we loving to the extent that we really reflect God's love for us and for our community? I mean, what would it look like if that was really on our mind? What might we do more of? What might we do less of? I think these are the kind of things that, that this text and this book is leading us to ask, which is a good thing for us as a young church because we need, we need to remain focused on that which is our charge, which is love. Now you might ask, well, what, what if I look at my life and yeah, there's, there's a lack of love. What do I do? Well, you repent. You repent and recognize that the way that you're treating others is not in keeping with what God says is best and not in keeping with how he loves you. The good news is that for every step away from that right living and right doctrine, the way back is, is simply through the grace of God. That we can know and experience God's love and forgiveness every time and that we will be filled once again with the capacity to care for the people around us. I want to end by reading verse 5 again which is really the focus of this entire passage, where Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. May that be true of us. May we not be distracted by secondary things and may we give all of our energy and focus in terms of how to really show that love to the people around us and to God himself. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for this word. Lord, a hard word in many ways. But a word that is meant to refocus your church on what is essential. Not just for us, but for the, the people around us. For our community. Lord, I pray you'd help us as a church. For Tri-City Church. For us, Lord, who call Tri-City home. Would you, would you help us to have this call to love on the forefront of our mind? Lord, may it, 
may it drive us in terms of how we give and how we use our time and how we, uh, the energy and the things we put our, our focus on. May we look for opportunities and be in prayer saying, Holy Spirit, help me to see the people in my lives that, that really need to be cared for, really need a word of encouragement, really need forgiveness and grace. Help us, Lord, to see that there are a great many things that you've written about and communicated to us in your word, and we should study all of it, but that there is one essential truth, and that is that you love us in spite of our sin. And I pray, Lord, we would not lose focus on the gospel so that we ourselves would continue to grow in faith and love and so that many more would be saved. Lord, continue, please, to preserve us and to lead us into righteousness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.